citizens of the people's game. Welcome to another bumper episode of The Pod on a great day for optionally bald off-spinners everywhere. Gordon, how are you? I'm ecstatic. Go the optional bald off-spinners. Go the cricket. We won't talk too much about cricket because this is, of course, a footy podcast. But boy, oh boy, wowee. If BT was calling that game, he would have run out of breath before lunch. Scenes and dreams, JB. Scenes and dreams. I'm mm. delirious. I haven't slept. Whew, it's going to be a tough pod, but I'll get through. Nathan Lyon was making it do all sorts of things out the rough. Talking of rough, the Eagles are in anything but a rough patch. Casey Simons, you are now flag favourites. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for finally believing that we could do it again. It's only taken 20 rounds for you to get on board. This will only last for one week. <laughs> everyone gets everyone gets a week to be flag favourites. This is your week and then something else will happen next week and someone else will be flag favourites again. Probably I Collingwood. They're probably due to come all the way back. <laughs> and I really enjoyed Fox Footy do like AFL power rankings, which I, yeah. are the same as the last. <laughs> well, that was my initial thought. And then actually they're more, they're actually, I've warmed to them a little bit because they're a reflection of like not just the latter, but also the form, which I then think those two things collate into your ability to actually win it. Geelong are fifth in the power rankings at the moment, yeah. for example. So that's mm. essentially rating GWS as a better chance of winning the flag. Um, I don't really know if you weren't favourites a week ago, how you leapfrogged Richmond when you beat Carlton and Richmond beat Melbourne. Like what evidence have you got over <laughs> the weekend that has flipped that around that drastically? Anyway, bit of a just tangent. A better they win. won in Melbourne. <laughs> They did. That's why. But, like, a resurgent Carlton outfit under the leadership of David Teague. Mm. I don't know. I'm not sure. We'll see. Play out, see how the power rankings are next week. I will keep you updated because I do. I don't. I wouldn't say I hate read them, but I read them. You definitely hate read them, well, particularly kinda, when West Coast I click it. on them and I always <laughs> go, aren't the power rankings just the latter? And then I click on them anyway. Um, so... That little tangent. And AFLX has been scrapped is the other bit of news for the day. I'm absolutely shocked by that. I had a great time at AFLX this year. It was just such a thrilling contest. You know, everyone was so keen and involved and the place was packed and the kids on the sideline got to touch the silver pill. Like, it's beautiful. You're really bringing your Ian Chappell enthusiasm <laughs> to this one. If anyone's heard Ian Chappell's 12th man impersonations, that is what Gordo sounded like just then. So we're going to launch straight into Hot Pies this week. Now, Casey... Have you heard the new Picket Palace song about Richo? Boy, oh boy, goodness gracious me. Wowie. Richo, it's a belter. It's What's good. wrong with you, man? Oh, I don't know. You don't have to jog my memory. Richo, 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 Richo. Now, Richo. Oh, that's who. The big man. It's not like you've been singing it to me all weekend. Richo. Now, I um, had two things I wanted to pick up on on this. The first one is it has, what, uh, 1,400 listens on Spotify. Awesome. 50 of them are definitely me. (laughs) If it registers two listens. Does it it register another listen every time I listen? They don't do unique listens. It's just bulk listens. Well, I'm obviously propping Picket Palace up at this point because I do love their music. But I picked out a couple of things. So there's one lyric in particular that really resonated with me. More than just a footballer, Richo. More than a commentator. He's somewhat of a father figure to me. Nice warm pal in the back from you. It's sort me for life, I reckon. Good on you, mate. You should have won that round, though. You're rocked. <laughs> now, I hear that and I nearly cried, mainly because Richo was three quarters of my childhood. Yeah. So that was my first outtake. Nostalgia. The video clip of this is exceptional as mm. well. Good on Seven for buying in. The second outtake was the latter. So this, you you, are, you don't have any time to read this, but I paused it today and took a screenshot and then kind of tried to work out what was going on. So Richmond are top, shock. Um, number two is the Hobson's Bay Coast Guard, Porpoise Spit, Mount Defence, Swamp, David Ritchie and the Neighbours, Lovejoy, Pinch Points, The Speculators, and then Picket Palace last. I don't understand why they've had two-ish wins and their percentage is two-ish. I missed <laughs> that joke. But every- Also, Richmond's percentage is 222.2. How did I miss that? More importantly, chew, 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 for chew. <laughs> is, that's a good outtake. But everyone on this ladder is a Melbourne-based band of some description. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Very, so it's a really, cool. really nice little plug. If any, I'm not sure if I'm the first person to pick this up. I really hope I am. But There's anyway. There's no chance you are, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, but who else has time to pause Picket Palace videos? Everyone who's watching Picket Palace videos. Cool. It's not just me then. Good on him. And the footy record is out Friday the 23rd, so it comes out in round 23. Would strongly recommend. And not many people know that I've been struggling a little bit with just a bit of anxiety and, and my mental health, I suppose I should say, and it's very private. The comparison 
to when I was a player to the current day football environment is very different because the people are very different. So, Case, your hot pie for the week. My hot pie is something a bit different this week. Um, there was an announcement that came out from AFL House, um, which usually I think would send chills down the bones of any football fan when you see an announcement coming out because you know it's going to be something that is usually not too good for the game or can change what you fundamentally love about the game. But this is probably the first announcement that I've seen that just actually made me so happy to be a football fan and really po- feel positive about the future. Um, the AFL announced uh, that two key appointments to their executive, um, the first being Dr Kate Hall, who has been appointed to um, the AFL's Head of Mental Health and Wellbeing, and Dr Ranjit Menon, who is the AFL's Chief uh, Psychiatrist. So these are two, I believe, um, like world industry leading appointments across the sports industry to have two positions like this um, come into a governing sporting body um, that really puts mental health on the table as something to not just be aware of anymore but actually have an action plan and the right people in place to sort of keep this conversation going and actually put steps there for I think it's not just players, it's past players, it's administrators, it's officials, so anyone that has any sort of touch point with the game. Um, it's just so, so impressive to see the AFL taking these steps and just makes me feel that the game I love sometimes does do the right thing and sometimes does put the right people in place to look after these really important issues and... I think this is something that I'd been thinking about for a while because I guess on a bit of a side note, um, I'd just seen, um, I'd had an advanced screening of a Collingwood documentary that's coming out um, as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is called Collingwood um, From the Inside Out, which I'm actually hosting a Q&A with the filmmakers after the screening on August 15. Um, And you wrote about this on The Guardian? And I wrote about the film in The Guardian, yeah. I got to sit down with one of the filmmakers, Josh Cable, and we had a chat about the film. Um, And the main takeaway from me is it does follow a few different narratives, um, but one of them is following um, Adam Trelaw's struggle with anxiety and the issues around his mental health during the 2018 season and just the support that he got from the football club. And we had a lot of conversations about how aware people are becoming um, now with with how important mental health issues are. And Josh said something really interesting to me, which was just, you know, like awareness is just, it's not enough anymore. Like we can't just say, oh yeah, you know, we've got to have awareness. We've got to have awareness and raise awareness. Like we need action. And this announcement from the AFL uh, this week actually really made me feel really good because after having that conversation with him, I was like, actually, yeah, you're right. Because I think that's something that I say a lot and have said a lot in the past. It's like, yeah, it's good to have awareness. We need to have awareness. But at the end of the day, awareness can only get you so far. You need to have those systems in place to actually take action. And this seems like the really, really good step towards that. And we're going to book club the doco in about what, two weeks, three weeks after it pops out and we've all seen it, we've seen you host. I'll add to that a little footnote because I listen to, in terms of action, uh, rather than just awareness, I listen to Willosophy with Wayne Swass, who mm. used to play for North Melbourne. It's a yeah. very, very long episode. It's an hour and 40 minutes. But it uh, kind of talked a little bit about um, how to deal with close ones, like close friends who have mental health and what space you want to create for them around you so that they can share things easily. And it kind of also... Um, spoke about like your own action plan and your own way own your kind of self-care routine I think right. is what I'm trying to go for and it was probably as good an hour and 40 minutes of audio as I've listened to mm. for anything in that space um, in terms of pres- like not not prescribing but giving you active ways to deal with your own mental health and to help others yeah um, and so I would strongly recommend anyone listening to that yeah um, it's already be- I've listen. already found it really useful just in conversations that I've had with friends about stuff and about allowing them and helping them be more open because of how I act and behave. Yeah. Well, I think um, that sort of stuff is so important just to keep putting those things out there so they're visible. And I think that's the really key thing with these appointments, with these appointments of these um, these key positions is they're now front and centre. They are visible roles in an organisation that people can see. Mm. And I think that does start to normalise these things and helps people have these conversations about things and think about those steps and brings it into the conversation more. So it's not just about being aware of it. It is what's the next step after that, which I think is really great. So yeah, it's one of those moments where, um, yeah, I just feel really proud to be a footy fan when things like this happen. So, 
Gordon, you brought a pie today as well. I did bring a pie today as well. And coincidentally, it kind of fits in a nice little happy space between the two of those, between kind of uh, ridiculous fun punk rock times and the importance of creating safe spaces and places where you can uh, be your authentic self and deal with what you need to deal with. And uh, that was, I accidentally, basically, I coincidentally came home at the same time as my housemate. My housemate was like, I'm off to go to my friend's footy fundraiser. Would you like to come? And I was like, sure, why not? And we ended up going to uh, what was called Gouger Love Fest 5 Winter Gougerland. And it was hosted by the East Brunswick Eye Gougers, who are a club in the Renegade Pub League. And it was probably the best night of the year so far for me. Better than ours? Wow. I'm like, offended. It, it, <laughs> it, we had a 5 a.m. Yeah, this was probably six and it was large and it was fun. And it was just, it was, it reminded me why I often get into, like, why I often go, oh, why do I love sport? Why do I love clubs? Why do I love mm. playing sport and being involved in a club? And that was it. You got there and it was, everyone was, they were a super inclusive club and that's by design as well. But even on the night, like me as a complete, well, not a complete stranger, I knew one of the, the players and I was with a friend, whatever. Um, but yeah, just so inclusive, so welcoming, so much fun. They are great. If you want to get involved, that's a great lead to get involved with. It's a, um, uh, ungendered league, so everyone can play. But the Gougers specifically have an amazing story. So they went through a period where it's a pub league, so you're usually attached to a pub. And they were East Brunswick eye gouges because they were attached to the East Brunswick club, which shut down. So they, mm. they played for a while without a pub, which is why they don't have any pub, uh, yeah, any pub logos on their jersey. Now they just wear black. And then when uh, their yeah, when their attached pub shut down, they kind of lost membership from that. And they were like, oh, we're going to go out. This was at the same time as the AFLW kicked off. And um, so what actually happened then is I went, well, right, let's make it. Like what is missing in the in footy? Not just AFL, but like footy in general. And it's like well, a space that's not super masculine. And so that's where the term of the gouger came from. And so they said phrases like holding the man, man up, man on man, exclude non-men entirely. So we encourage people to swap the word man for the word gouge, which isn't gendered and is in line with our club's spirit. And so you are a gouger. And so everyone there on the night was a gouger, an honorary gouger. And they also had a band called Gouge and Roses, uh, <laughs> which was like a little fun little cover band where they would like flip out certain words to have gouge. And it's, you know, it was just good, oh, that's a, harmless, that's so good. super mm, fun time. Yeah. Sounds awesome. I accidentally went there, had an amazing time, looked up this and found an amazing story. And on the back of that, so they had super low um, participation um, and at the same time, female participation, on binary participation and trans participation in footy in general was really low. And on the back of that, the focus is on inclusivity as opposed to anything else. And so it's just like, if you want to kick, kick, kick footy, we don't care who you are. We don't care where you come from. We don't care what your deal is. If you're willing to become a gouger, put on a, put on some black clothes and kick the footy around. We want you to be there as well. So just a really fun, accidental find and some super cool peeps to hang out with on a Saturday night slash Sunday morning. So, speaking of super fun people to go with the footy with case, we had a little little adventure, didn't we, on Sunday? However, this is this is in the show notes as a cold pie. I would have <clears> thought this would be a hot pie experience. Yes, well, well I thought it was. Well, it's, um, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And um, while I was at Marvel Stadium watching my West Coast Eagles play, which I take such immense pleasure in because I only see them in Melbourne a couple of times a year. It's a really special moment for me. I you could just parry for a Victorian team champ. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I really cherish these moments when they come to town. It's a big deal for me. And... Um, one of the pod team decided to come along with me, which... I don't think I decided. I think I just, just I stated. Yeah, actually. I, I didn't, didn't really, really have I don't think I phrased it as a question. <laughs> you were just there. Um, and there was some banter before the game because I rightfully so had my concerns about your behaviour and you assured me that you would be on Team Eagles and you wouldn't be your annoying self. But no. It only took two minutes of me sitting down for you to start cheering Carlton like they were your own and getting up and about every time the ball went into their forward 50. 
And because I came in at quarter time, because I had a commitment before, so I'd already missed the first quarter and West Coast were at that point looking like they were struggling a little bit. And you took immense pleasure in that as well. And it was just the ugly side of you, JB, and you soured my football experience. <laughs> so what was your intention there, JB? I was supporting the game. Why'd you go there to to uh, kill her vibe? I didn't. I feel prosecuted. <laughs> I went to enjoy an afternoon at the footy. I enjoyed... At the expense of one of your good friends. No, I enjoyed supporting the Eagles when the moment was right. Did you though? I, I did. Feel yeah, I like fist bumped you... very exuberantly mm. at several Eagles goals once you'd sat down. Um, I, I feel comfortably like you sat didn't. on the fence. I feel you like you were scar? not on the I fence. Didn't, well, they don't exist. <clears throat> he was Although not it would have been what Judd on one half and Kennedy on the other. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> but no, um, I, I I don't know. No, you only like I, briefly I cheered for West down. Coast a little bit when I got cross at you, and then you just went straight back to Carlton. Clearly, you're still cross at me. I'm a little bit. Well, cross. I had to, on one hand, <laughs> appease Gabby, and then on the other, appease actually, you. this is an interesting point because we should bring this into full context. So, your partner joined us at halftime, and she has more of an affiliation with the Carlton Football Club than you do. She sat in between us, thankfully, because I needed some reprieve, and she was much more well behaved than you were. And she had much more reason not to be. So I am still throwing you under the bus on this one. I was very disappointed in your, in your behaviour. And I think this is your team meeting for you to sit down and reflect on your actions and be better for next week. I promise I will. Yep. But not the week after, because that will be the battle of the pod. <laughs> and so. the week after. So All bets are off for the week after. <laughs> I believe in karma. <laughs> okay. And so I believe that this will come back to bite me on the ass at the Richmond West Coast game <laughs> and I will want to be absolutely rid of you and shot of you. Also, though, I feel like it's a little bit rich for you to be having a pop at me for winding you up because when we watch Richmond, it's all coming out of the baggage now. When I watch Richmond West Coast with you, we hadn't even known each other that long. <laughs> you had, I hadn't certified with you that you could behave whatever and I would love you anyway. And essentially, you just, re- you just lambasted me for two quarters. I feel like this is different because... no. It's exactly it was, the same. No, because it's my team. With Carlton and not your team. But I've still, I'm still looking for retribution. Well, and I didn't don't get it because Carlton ten didn't goals win. next time. Well, <laughs> heaven help our friendship if we. It's coming against you. The People's Question this week is born out of Jake Niles' column in The Age on Sunday. He wrote a column called The New Normal, which was really about the disconnect between the way the game is now played and the way that fans think. I think it was perhaps best epitomised by this little passage, which I will read you, and I quote, In the new game, fans still cry, kick the bloody thing, and pick them up when those sitting in the coach's box often want neither of those outcomes. You could add to that list, not that Niall actually said it, one too many bloody handballs um, and several other whims and wisecracks. So this kind of opened up a couple of things that I wanted to have a think about with you guys. Um, And I guess the central part of this people's question is whether we choose to plead ignorance in the name of theatre and tradition um, and if that is our rationale for doing so. Well, I'm probably not the best person to answer this question because I don't come from a traditional uh, fan background and I love sport because I love problem solving and I love overcoaching and I love defence and tackles and all things that are the antithesis of our retro footy. So uh, I'll throw this on to Casey (laughs) to lead us off. Thanks, buddy. Um, I think there's a couple of things with this. I think, yes, some... I think like the pleading ignorance thing is interesting because I think, yes, there's an element of that because most fans aren't coaches. But I also think there's something a bit different about the position of a fan in something like this where when you're watching a game as a fan, you're not sitting there watching your team play thinking they are doing exactly what the coach is telling them to do and I'm okay about that because that makes you really passive and being a fan is a really active experience. So I think... Fans yelling out, you know, kick it or, you know, why are you handballing so much? That brings a fan into the space where they feel like they have a bit more control and a bit more to offer the game, which 
we know is an illusion of the fan experience. Like you have no control as a fan, but that also is not what the psyche of being a fan is. So I think this is a really interesting discussion because I know for me, like I trust Adam Simpson as a coach, particularly now, like he's a premiership winning coach. Like I know he's got this, but also like I'm going to yell out stuff at my players because I sit there on the edge of my seat. If the ball's being contested and it's like hot potato footy and I'm getting frustrated because I want it to come out and I want to get it into the 50 and I want clear marks and I want kicks. Like I will say that stuff, but I know that it probably is against what they're being told to do, but that's just how I get my frustrations out or how I participate in that space and feel like I'm doing something. Like I'm not just going to sit there quietly with my hands folded on my lap and be like, oh no, they're being coached to do this. This is fine. Mm. Like you still have to participate in some way. And I think this kind of behavior is an example of that. I feel like there's some different now, different levels of fandom. And as much as it says, this is the new normal, I think it also uh, kind of ignores or perhaps even Niall is being ignorant of the different sects we have of, of fans now. So like once upon a time, there was only one broadcaster. You could only watch footy on Channel 7. And so it's a very generalist broadcast. Yep, 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 yep. And that's still the case now. Whereas like if you have Fox footy, if you're a, if you're a proper like in the weeds, nuff, nuff footy dude, then you're going to be like, you're going to be, you're going to know about the X's and O's. You're going to know about zones. You're going to know about, you know, rotating midfielders and whatever. And so like a lot of the time now with my similarly minded nuffies, We'll, we'll say that. We, we won't be yelling out, kick it more. We'll be like, why is he not securing the ball? And like, where's the ball security? And like, all that kind of stuff. And even now to the extent where we kind of get like, nuffy about the rules. So like at the moment, the consistent bugbear week to week is about like holding the ball and like incorrect disposal and the umpire's not paying that. That's our thing at the moment. So we still have ball, but it's not because we, it's not because we, we, we know it's not holding the ball. It's because we actually think it's holding the ball and it's not being paid. So it's like a whole other like nuffy inception. Yeah, but you're, a, I think, a different footy fan. because you meant, So you mentioned Fox v. Seven. Yeah. And I watched a Seven broadcast of the game on Saturday night with the analysis. And the gap in what they give you in those two mediums in terms of analysis of the game is quite different. Mm. Um, and I probably didn't realize that because I always watch on Fox. So you get a very different experience and feel for it depending on what platform you watch. And again, if you only ever listen to it on the radio or you only ever go and that's your only footy experience, it's going to be really, really different to someone that watches it through another lens. I guess my kind of thinking with this a little bit is like if you kind of have followed the evolution of footy over the past 20 years. Zones have been around for, what, 15 years is pretty commonplace. Yeah. Um, teams like Richmond play high handball. And I have found it a little bit personally frustrating for th- something like, oh, my God, why are we handballing? It's like that's literally our game plan. Yeah. And so, like, is that I, that's no different grated? to just, like, you get frustrated at what your parents say and how they act and the music they listen to and the movies they watch. <laughs> like, But, like, it is, like, it, like people, like, we say the last 15 years... But like there are sixty year olds of the footy, there are fifty year olds, forty year olds. Correct. Like and like that's they go back to when they like first fell in love with footy and they're like, Well, back in my day, Rich, I used to kick it long and take a screamer. That's like that's what they want. They want that. Mm. And so they want that what when I think some of it is like just want to get involved. Some of it is they want to see more kicking because that's what they want to see. And that's why we have the AFL and Hawking being like, well, what we what do we have to do to make sure the game is still the game? Our answer is nothing because we've grown up with High handball and zones and coaches of professionalism and win at all costs, but not that's not everyone's no. background. Yeah, not definitely. And even to go back to like what you're saying about you know the the access to analysis and you know the difference between like free to wear and and what you're paying for on Foxtel to get the access to that. There are still people who would have access to both, but would watch neither because they get up and they make a cup of tea at halftime mm. or they go check on the kids or they go do something else. Like there are some fans who are just not engaged with that space and because like either they're not interested or they don't want to be, or they don't have the time to be. So I think there are so many different types of fans with, which we've talked about before um, that would come to footy just to watch the game and watch the game, how they think it's meant to be played, which is, lots of kicks and goals and marks. Mm. So they get frustrated when they don't see that. So that's why they call out for it. But I don't think that's a problem. I think that's still part of the fan experience. No. But then I think you can have fans like yourselves who are more highly educated. You yeah. seem to be a bit more tolerant of those. I just fans. think it's also <laughs> that like speaking quite 
broadly about the piece again, like the score scoring has gone down. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, I just want to make sure that's not lost as a main thread, but then uh, thinking about like think like those deliberate phrases and even something like yelling out, holding the ball. I feel like to a large extent that's learnt behavior. So there's, yeah. a, there's people like, so I think that's People a very different thing. I, th- I still think a lot of that vernacular is learnt and perhaps not questioned in much the same way as we don't question a lot of the old sporting cliches. Yeah, definitely. We're going to trot them out without actually thinking about the implications of what we're saying. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think the, I mean, the, the holding the ball cry is really interesting because I think that's something completely separate to, m- you know, misinformed fans or fans who don't understand game plans to be calling out actions which coaches don't want. The holding the ball thing is just a – it's the same when you call out for free kicks. Like, it's, But, again, it comes from a lack of objectivity, right? So you're not objectively analysing and thinking about whether your coach is doing the best thing. But you're it's just thinking purposeful about- – like it's purposeful subjectivity. Like you throw yourself into that because you put yourself into – you're trying to get the best result for your team. So logic doesn't apply in that sense. That's so part- it's completely subjective. There's no objectivity no, I think no, I think there is a bit of objectivity because there you you look I think it's a it's a big group think and it's a little bit of like I reckon we can buy one off the ump here. Yeah, but when that's you call what out, I just when said. You, when yeah, you, you call out, you buy can, into yeah. that. Like, yeah. The noise purposeful. of affirmation. Well, you you would, and that's why, fan. And that's why, yeah, West Coast, go to the West Coast and they usually get the dubious free kick because it, it is. It's 60,000 people crying out ball. And it's not because they don't know what holding the ball is or like if it actually, when they cry out ball, but it's actually incorrect disposal because that just means the same thing. Like I think that that's just a term. Like if there was like a footy vernacular dictionary, the cry of ball spelt with 28 A's is actually mean just like an appeal to the umpire. To, mm. It's like, how's that in cricket? Exactly. Like, how's yeah. that? It's not a word, but it's a it's a term in cricket. Yeah. And the I same think sort of thing. that's part of the theatre of it is because you're calling out to someone to change a result. Like, you're trying to play your role for the team. And that's why, like, when a free kick is given to you and you know it wasn't there, but you clap it because you're like, yes, because it's given to your team. Even though, like, you're not going to sit there and be like, oh, actually, I disagree. I think we should actually, can we get a review of that and give it back to the other team? You're just like, yes, good on you, boys, when they yeah. actually did nothing. Like, it was yeah. just an error or whatever. But that's part of the theatre of it. Like, it's pantomime. Um, and I don't see, like, in... Like, I don't think that's a, the wrong way to go about it because I think that's kind of the fun of being a participant in sport as long as it's not, you're not being derogatory or violent or anything like that. You're just participating in a fan culture. And it's kind of fun. Like, it's kind of fun to get up and yell out those things. Now, do you think that's changed? Because I think, and this is drawing on from a, a Bob episode, ironically on Fox Footy, uh, with uh, Waleed, where they said that they reckon, like, the antagonism of footy fandom's gotten more aggressive and their hypotheses, although probably very nostalgic driven, is that now like seated reserved seat members are all from the same club like, in the one area, whereas back in the old days, apparently, this is before my time, um, they used to be interspersed. So the, the reserve seat and the walk up mm. off the street and the opposition were all in the same bays. Yeah, that is true that reserve seat holders are grouped together, but there are only very few clubs where all of those seats are completely sold out. So those unsold seats do go back to the general public. So you will get diverse base. It's not like the EPL or anything like that where you have completely segregated fans. And that's not what the AFL wants Mm. either. So whenever these issues of fair behaviour come out and people say, oh, should we segregate fans? It's always like, no, 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 that's not our our ethos. Like we bring people together. So, I mean, I don't subscribe to that too much. Um, I mean, I'd have to do a bit more research into that side of things, but that's not what I've discovered in my fan research. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure where that's come from and it might just be a personal experience thing. Like I've read a lot of um, Waleed Ali's stuff that he's written about his own experiences um, as a Richmond supporter and I know he has had some some interesting experiences and some pretty horrific ones as well. Um, I actually used a piece of his in my PhD thesis um, to sort of talk about sort of the isolation and being picked out um, in a crowd because of what you look like. Um, so I don't know if that plays a role in those experiences as well. I mean, that's not my experience, so I can't talk to that. Um, but, yeah, that's not something I see as a researcher, but that's not to say it's not there. It just means I haven't really looked at it. I suppose the other point from this, so there's that, there's the fan experience and how that changes over eras and what is acceptable in society and what's not. I suppose the other part is, 
like as as we just mentioned before, that the AFL has has essentially bubbled away at the same kind of level of professionalism for about eighty odd years, and then just exploded exponentially in this professionalism and must win and the level of analysis, number of coaches, la di da di da. So, to bring another sport that has the same similar problem in the NBA, everyone's shooting threes. And there are people that grew up in the nineties being like, well, where's the big man? And where's like the hustle? And where's like this, where's the strength? Now all we get now is like skinny, tall shooters that just shoot from three. You run up to the three line, you shoot it. Show. And it's these people that grew up in the Jordan era, which apparently is the best era, which is coincidentally around about 30 years ago. Well, so that's, that's, so that's, Waleed that's, that's has the same piece about Aussie rules, doesn't he? Because that was when the 80s, and there's a book now that I've just given you about electrifying 80s, which is edited by Russell mm. Jackson, which has this idea that that was the decade because it was just enough professionalism that the athletes were as fit as you can be in a semi-pro environment, but not so much that it was overcoached or coached to the extent that it is now. So, so my question this, yeah, to you then as a person that kind of dabbles in both the nuffy and the, the nuanced is, is there an importance to keep... AFL, afl Like, do we need to have different body types? And do we need to have space? And do we need to, like, do we need to keep footy like it was in the 90s? Or can it just be whatever it is? And and the fans will catch up or they won't care or... I just think it evolves. The, the game evolves. Like, it's... And it's... We've said this probably before and multiple times. Like, it, footy wasn't, like... Wasn't that great in the early 1900s. It had to do... There had to be some evolutionary steps. And I just think that has been the... the process that it goes through and it will continue to go through and i don't really have an issue with that but then i'm someone who is in like so would you care so the, i think the nth degree of this would be like every team in the afl becomes like the western bulldogs where everyone is like capable of playing in the midfield they're all around about 185 centimeters tall they're all around about 90 kilos heavy they all just they're just 18 of the same people running around as opposed to having keys and mids that and, won't happen but it, well, as in like they they won a premiership yeah, but it won't that happen way. to eighteen teams. But it what well, Nat Five is currently, we just get all Amazonian Nat Fives. Like if you could if you could find eighteen Nat Fives, you would have that as your team. Yeah, no doubt. But I'm not. But that I don't think ever, we're ever going to be in a position where all eighteen Ooh, clubs do that. I reckon we're in a position in about fifteen years. That's the case. Fine, play on, <laughs> run with it. Like evolution, like in terms of the evolution of like physiques and training abilities and whatever. You can, you, we will definitely be in a position where it's scientifically possible in the next, within the next decade of having people as tall and as heavy as Nat Fife being as aerobically fit. He will no longer be a freak. He will just be, oh, that's what we need to be, be a footballer. As what happened in the basketball, which is a, probably a decade ahead of AFL, as what happened in the NFL, where even quarterbacks now are just huge, almost like gigantic. Like all these sports that get super professional, even like football, like European football, now everyone just needs pace. You just need so much pace to play footy. Back in the day... You could be a fullback that had no pace. You just had to pass the ball. So everyone, it is like, are we at risk of like clocking the game of footy in the sense that we now know all the cheat codes. We now how you know now how to win, and it just becomes this homogenized. No, because if you're talking about <laughs> no, <laughs> if you're well, if you're saying that Fife will be the norm in 15 years, hmm. right? There will still be the figure then who is to footy then what Fife is to footy now. But it's the, the no, double. But it's five. the rule of diminishing returns. So, so like right now, no, right now Fife is probably like what five percent better than every other footballer. At his peak, he's probably five percent better. Like he's he's an extraordinary thing, but like back in the old days, there were players who were like twenty five percent better. There were players like Plugger who was just like unstoppable, and then back in before that, there were players that won like how many repeat Brownleys did we had? Did we see back in the fifties and sixties? And how many repeat Premiers? Like the the AFL wants. The AFL, by design, wants it to become closer and closer and more competitive. But by getting that, you actually get less difference amongst teams, styles. If everyone's trying to get to the same goal, we all converge. That's just how like I don't it think you're ever going to get universal agreement across the AFL, the fans, and everyone else that has a stake in the game about what the like. We won't agree on an end aim. No, 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 no. That's that's not the issue. I think if the issue becomes now that. It, the only point in footy is to win. And once you work out the best way to win, that's the best way to win. Same thing as we see in basketball. The best way to win in basketball, shoot threes. So just, that's what comes. There's no different game styles. There's no, there's no you know, the, the, the bad boys. There's no, none of that. There's no I, different see, way to play I footy. still think the dimensions and the game design of footy is unique enough that there is no, there is no single way to do it. And I think you see that across the AFL and the way that different teams have contrasting styles. And I, I don't, 
I can't see that going out. Because... So if that's the case, then we just leave the game alone. Because if we that's, ever... That's, that, that's the crux that's of the question. What, that's my personal opinion. If yeah. we ever come up with a best way... So, okay, so if you just assume that the West Coast Eagles taken bulk uncontested marks was the best way last year, mm-hmm. and that was what won it. Okay? You, yeah. So there's all sorts of other variables that play into it other than game plan, like performances on individual days, right? But, okay, cool. We know what West Coast do. We now find a way to combat it. Everyone works out what they can do about it to the best of their ability. We find another thing. And that is, that's just the cycle. Someone, you, if someone plays a trump card, we go and find a new trump card. And I just don't think that will ever change because I'm optimistic about footy having brain power mm. and having minds like Clarkson and X other number of people in the game and Blake Carousella, who I'm heartbroken, has just moved to Esmond. But like, when you have that amount of brain power, you're always going to find a better way or another way or a different way. And then that, I think, just makes the... I, I don't really have an issue with the game being chess-like. And I th- so we've spoken a little bit about but, yeah, but like even even to use chess, and we've probably we're probably uh, you know surfing on the peripheries of tangentials here. But <laughs> we're so tangential. <laughs> Don't even try and pretend. But, but like chess, for instance, that's that's the perfect example where the difference now between a grandmaster and like a fourth tier is like a tenth of a percent. Like that's that's the point. It's like every, you. Like once you once you go trump card, trump card, trump card, trump card, and just keep stacking, the difference between those trump cards gets infinitesimally smaller. So then I think the interesting takeaway from me after this conversation and the tangents that you both went on there, which was fascinating to follow. Well, I mean, for me, it was so interesting just to see how both your brains escalate with this kind of questions, because I'm still thinking of it from like that initial fan question is I think as much as you both hypothesize how these sports can change and get to those elite levels and not have those points of difference anymore. I don't think the fan behavior changes at all. So even if you could get to the best of the best whole team of Nat Fives, you are still going to have a grandstand full of fans yelling out ball when it's not ball and telling him to kick it when he probably is – that whole team has been told not to kick it. Like that's just fan behaviour. Haven't got their kicking licence, have they? <laughs> so then when the AFL goes, oh, we're scared that people will turn away, are, are they fallacies? I think I think they are. I think they're the excuses that they tell themselves to give them license to make changes that Correct. they want to make. For whatever to ulterior motive anyway. they have yeah. to yeah. So I think fans are always going to show up to footy. Footy's in, you know, the DNA of a lot of people in Australia, particularly in Victoria, and I think people are in love with the game and you can tell that by participation numbers, you can tell that by the attendances continuing to go up. Like people are not really switching off. I mean, you could probably argue across some games on year on year like there has been drop-offs but that's the same with everything like people are not going to turn their backs on Australian rules football unless the AFL completely makes it something unwatchable which I don't think is going to happen mm. um but but fans are there and fans are buying in and they will continue to do so and they are going to continue to yell at players for not doing what they want or for doing exactly what they want but just because they want to yell because that's part of the experience and I think that's kind of the that's as I said before, that's the theatre and that's the fun of it because I think if nothing else, like fans are actually very aware of their behaviour and fans are usually very aware of how absurd they're being. Where there's um, like issues with that is when you tell someone that they're being absurd because you can't tell someone they're being absurd, being ridiculous, but they know that they're being ridiculous, mm. but you can't call it out. That's part of like the group thing thing. Like mm. we all kind of like noddingly will know we're, all being crazy, that football is just a game. But this is what we've decided to do. We've made a choice. So when someone outside of football, whatever, tells you, like, you're crazy that you love football that much, that's when you get a bit like you don't understand and it's personal. Mm. But football fans are are aware that they're being ridiculous, but that's what they want to do. That's what the sport allows them to do. And as long as it doesn't hurt anyone or doesn't make anyone feel unwelcome or uncomfortable, like, I think that's one of the great things about our sport. We've got a new book. It's called Khan, The Game and the Country That Plays It by Andrew Muller. And it's essentially an anthology of different matches of Australian rules. So it's the history of the AFL-VFL competition mapped out over its most significant matches. So I'm going to open up with you, Casey. How did you consume this one? How did I consume it? Um, Do you consume books? Do you read them? Do you... You probably read them, to be fair. (laughs) There's probably a verb that's directly connected to books. That's that's read. (laughs) To read. Um, Well, 
I guess lending to the fact that it is an anthology. So I started reading, I read the introduction in the first couple of chapters. Um, but what I like to do with books like this that don't follow sort of a whole narrative, um, or like all the chapters are standalone stories about particular games. So I've read this over the last week. Um, I like to put books like this on the armchair of my couch and when I sit down at the end of a long, hard day and I put on the tally and I watch some footy shows and then I go up and make a cuppa and if I'm getting a bit sick of what the boys are saying on the couch because I've watched three footy shows before it gets to that point, I'll pick up the book on the uh, armchair of the couch and I'll have a flip through and I'll just read something and just switch off for a little bit. So that's essentially how I consumed this book, JB. So it's been like, um, yeah, over a few nights just picking it up every now and then and just picking random parts of the book to look at. So I haven't read it from front to cover as you would traditionally read a book. I've sort of flipped through different things. So as you mentioned, it's a lot of different stories about different games over the history of the Australian Rules Football League. So it goes back to the first game ever played and then it sort of the finishes. The first day of games really, he covers all of them in that first piece. Yeah, true. Um, and then sort of dips in and out of sort of uh, – across different games, across a different time period. So I found it really interesting to read some more modern games and then go back and read some from like the early 1920s mm. and then sort of chop and change. Because I think that's also how I've come to enjoy this book as well, is reading it in that way. Because I think reading it um, sort of from start to finish, you kind of go through that evolution of the game, which is probably how it's intended to be yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I kind of liked going back from the modern game to the olden days and sort yeah. of seeing the like comparisons. Doctor Who type approach to history. Don't mind uh, I've never seen Doctor Who, oh. so I'm just going to smile His kind of thing is, is, is <laughs> like, he's the doctor, he has the ability to time travel wherever he goes, and he's just like, oh, let's go see the Queen today. And he'll go back to whenever Queen Victoria was oh, in the rain. And then, cool. and then some villains will come out and make it hard. and Yeah. He'll struggle to get back into his actual time zone and the girl will be crying because he might not come home. And The rest of it's not really uh, <laughs> relevant to the book, more just how you travel through time. Right. <laughs> Noted. I had much the same opinion. It, to me, was a either a really, really nice reference book mm -hmm. of important lifting off points or like I picked it up in my lunch break today and just scrolled through chapter names and found like the last game that university played. And so there's kind of those little... Nuggets, things that you might not have known about. And I think it was nice in its ability to bring us into some new knowledge. But mm -hmm. I didn't, and I haven't started or attempted to read it from cover to cover and won't. I think it'll mm. be one of those books, much like my sort of growing collection of footy almanacs and the ones that yep. are followed in the Eagles almanac and the Richmond almanac where you just go, you know what, I'm just going to pick this up. I've got 20 minutes. Yep. Going to read something, run with it, pick it up, enjoy it, mm. put it down again. Oh, I've got ten minutes. Cool, pick it up, read something. But yep, and that's kind of how I have rash or reasoned with it and reckoned with it. Is the Victorian bias kind of noted anywhere, like in a foreword or in a in a statement of intention? Just even the title itself kind of suggests something that it's not. So the game and the country that plays it, like even like you know Australian rules, and then the history of like the VFL mm. or AFL well, seems a bit strange. That like you would ignore. In terms of, like, if, if you're going to say, like, how the country and the game developed and evolved, then surely, like, the waffle and the sandfall yeah. in particular deserve Yeah, and the territory. And that, the territory. Do, that doesn't fit. That doesn't sit comfortably with me, but that's the common understanding in football history that, like, okay, VFL turned into AFL, therefore we'll prioritise talking about the VFL. And I don't think that... Generally, as a concept, I sort of shy away from trying or allowing myself to think about footy history in that vein, mm. um, much like you being a West Coast supporter, growing up in South Australia, you know, like a club um, like Port Adelaide has such a rich history yeah. that I think is underdone mm. and undertold, and mm. much the same for clubs in Perth, and much the same with the NT, and much the same with Tasmania. And but so I guess I don't know whether I think that the way this is written is just a broader reflection of how footy talks about its history, and it's spoken about as the Australian game. But if that's the thread, then the AFL is really only the only should only be viewed as the only competition from when it became truly national and there was a team in every state, mm. which didn't happen until the early nineties. I suppose the the kind of point, and that we it, still don't have a team in every state. Sorry, Tasmania. Yeah, and then the the interesting point about that subtitle too is, I mean, that's probably one of my uh, probably something I didn't really get a sense of is not just looking at the country from a football representation point of view, but from the historical point of view. And I think what he's done 
is like he's done a body of research to try and situate these games in times. Um, and I mean, the footnotes to each of these um, matches like are extensive. He's yeah. done so much work to sort of highlight different things that are outside of the narrative he's trying to retell through the prism of the game. But I also don't get a real sense of Australia as a country through a lot of his writing. And I think that's interesting considering that's part of what's on the cover. Mm. Um, so unless you're going to deep dive in all of those footnotes, and most of the time some of those footnotes, I mean, they are very Victorian-centric, which we've mentioned. Um, but and also I think some of the stuff that he goes into is not so much reflective of where, like, Australia was at during those times that more just reflective of like the world. So there's a lot of stuff around like World War Two mm. and World War One, yeah. um, which, you know, it's, it's interesting, um, but I think it doesn't really talk to how like the identity of Australia plays into football yeah. at the time. So in terms of his introduction, I don't know. And having not read all the pieces, I'm probably not going into it with all the information, but if that was the thesis, I think the thesis should have been more about telling Melbourne's story. I was, you, I was about to you mention can tell that, Melbourne's yeah. story through the early years of the VFL. Telling Australia's story as well, if you think about stuff that George Megalogenis was writing in the wake of the federal election, is fraught because mm. it's so vast, it's yeah. so broad, and it wasn't. I think it's still grappling with what the federated entity is. So to me, this would have been better pitched as Melbourne's story. Especially when you have two states that predominantly don't play AFL and their history especially doesn't lend themselves to it. And even they, I've never actually read uh, like a rugby league book that kind of goes to the extent of being like, oh, this is the history of even like their states because even they, like, I think where their their, uh, books lend themselves to kind of more conflict points is that they never had this kind of natural progression. They weren't like the VFL became the AFL. They were... Queensland City Metro and then Country, two different leagues. New South Wales Metro Country, two different leagues. Then they had a bunch of interminglings and state of origin. And then they went, oh, let's do the let's do the Super League, let's do the ARL. And then the whole thing kind of blew up. And then eventually, very late in the piece, they had the NRL. So that that kind of messy history allows you to jump off into points to create an anthology where it kind of goes a bit more of what was at least happening in those two states. Whereas this kind of like really clean anthology. And maybe there's a book in that. It's like, was that was that progression actually as clean as we think it was? And so or are it's we? Being, is it? Or are we, are we looking at through Melbourne coloured glasses? And it actually is still the VFL to an extent hmm. in terms of where the decisions are made and who they care about and whose story it tells. When books like this kind of portray the country, when really they mean maybe the state. Well, I think it's still like when we talk about a national comp, like the AFL doesn't. It's so beholden to its history in the sense that it arose out of the VFL. Because if you just design a national comp now, you don't have over fifty percent of the teams in one city. Yeah, it depends though. There are there are other sports in the world that do that. Like the Premier League is has a hugely dense London team. Correct, base, but also London's massive, and it's like a bigger city than even. It has probably a better claim on doing that than Melbourne or Sydney yeah. individually. I just yeah, I I guess for me. I'm like so the book does have a very clear purpose I think and like a very clear reason to to be read but I just think in terms of capturing more of Australia and football history the brief could very nicely be the significant games in Australian rules football anywhere in Australia that weren't necessarily in the confines of the league that's now the elite league and to me that brief then allows you to bring in so much other material yeah, but I think that's a completely different book. And it I is. think it um is. and I mean I think he's written it this way because obviously he's wanted to just talk about this league. Um and I think he probably isn't the right writer to write that other book as well. Mm, um Absolutely. Yeah, but I think like I I would like to see a book like that exist at some point. Um but like I think his intention for this was also to make a lot of this history quite palatable as well. Absolutely. So I think um, we spoke a little bit about that off air in the sense that, you know, there is a lot of history in here. And, yeah, for me, while I didn't get a sense of the reflection of the country and sort of more of a deeper understanding of where Australia was at at the times when some of these games he's writing about were played, I think potentially that's probably his intention as well because I think there are – texts out there, particularly academic texts that do do that, but are also really inaccessible for your everyday reader or people who just want to dip in and out of some footy narratives and just get a bit of a general sense. So, I mean, for me, 
I probably wanted a bit more, but maybe I'm not as reflective of, of that particular reader that he was aiming for as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it was done pretty purposely for him to write it like yeah. that. And I really loved, um, the piece about the end of university mm-hmm. because I just think it's one of those things now that I don't know if it's done, it's due. We kind of trot it out as a statistic. So their record of going three seasons without, you know, a, a huge amount of time without actually winning a game as a club. And it kind of underwrites and doesn't tell the full story of why that happened because they were essentially the first club to be kind of forced out and made redundant by player payments as a student club. Um, and th- so they were really the first victim of semi-professional or professional football. And when you think about then what happened in the 90s with the transition to nationalism and full, pro- pro- full professionalism and how that affected clubs... It's literally that story told so much earlier in, in a kind of a roundabout way. So I really enjoyed that. And the other one that I really enjoyed was um, John Nichols going head-to-head with Polly Farmer mm. and the the match report of – and it's funny because I read a few of these and they're not really – they're about the game but they're not in terms of like he kicked this at this time. So it kind of told a story of Polly Farmer and John Nichols and how they both came to be on that field on the same day at the same time which is good sports writing even in modern terms because it then picks up a new thread within that match, which turned out to be almost like those two men changed ruck work and good on them because without them, there's no nag. For me, it was really just interesting to go back just so far back. I mean, to me as a football fan, like when I've come to football, like I started supporting a team that came in in 1987. So even if I'm going back into my like football history, I'm not going back very far. So when a lot of people tell me about like, you know, stories about early days of football or they talk about these iconic moments from the 70s or the 60s, um, like I sort of go back and look at these things, but I don't have as much as a connection to them because my team doesn't have that much history. So I'm not going and deep diving because of the passion of my team. Like I will just do it out of a bit of interest. So something like this is really helpful for me to have these little like, I don't want to call them vignettes, but maybe just like little snapshots of these games that I kind of had some awareness of some of them, but then just zero awareness of some of them as well. So it's just been a fun reading exercise. But like the one I really enjoyed reading was um, the story of the bloodbath. So the Carlton South Melbourne grand final from 1945, um, because that's a time of football. Previously discussed on the pod. I was say, is that, a, is that a surprise, do you reckon, that you enjoyed that, being a West Coast Eagles fan? <laughs> A team that's solely based around like brutality and inappropriate, in, in, inappropriate actions off the ball, and that's not why I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed the writing. <laughs> I enjoy you taking like, the opportunity to have a dig just out of nowhere. Geez. I was like, I'm sat here. I'm like, where's this going? I know. That's what I was thinking too. I was not expecting that from Gordon, who usually protects yeah. me in these instances from JB's attacks. But and anyway, I've just gone a full gaff. And yeah, oh, <laughs> another one. Anyway, moving on. Um, so that was a really interesting, um, tale to read, um, mostly just because of the context of, of the war, um, which I alluded to earlier in terms of like that history. I think I would have enjoyed this a lot more if, um, it sort of went more into the context of like Melbourne, um, during that sort of wartime, like that's why they had to play the game at Princess Park is because the MCG was being used for the army reserves and things like that, which, you know, I didn't really know a lot about that sort of stuff. So that was really interesting. Um, I enjoyed reading, just randomly um, the chapter which is about the first ever broadcast matches um, which happened in 1957 which is amazing Um, but just the politics around actually broadcasting the games like there's this sort of story in there that um, there was three networks that had arranged to show the last quarter three different matches because of like bureaucracy and fighting between the VFL and different organisations they couldn't get it together so those three networks ended up showing the same game the last quarter of the same game, um, which I believe was a Collingwood Essendon game, um, which is just like amazing to read that kind of stuff from so long ago, just in the context of what we deal with now in terms of broadcast rights and just how much of a player that is in how we consume football. So that kind of stuff is really interesting to read. Um, The most fun one I read was a chapter titled The Runaway Elephant which is great. So this is one of those games that I was talking about before that I don't really have a concept of because my team doesn't have this history. I knew this was an incident, but I'd never really read that much about it. So it's the North Melbourne Collingwood game from round five, 1978, where they had the infamous elephant. As the mascot. Yes, as a marketing ploy. (sighs) 
And it's just... It's an a, actual elephant. Who, actual who signed elephant. off on this? <laughs> so it's interesting, this chapter, and this is um, another reason why I like this chapter because I think um, Mueller's writing style is really versatile. Like he's... Like the history stuff's there, the research is there, the information about the games is there, but sometimes in different chapters he gets quite creative. And is this chapter he actually sort of drafts the conversation that was probably had by sort of marketing people at the club in the time. Oh so God. it's quite humorous just how that this got over the line. So he's obviously not in the room in 1978 recording this conversation. It's creative writing, but it's really fun because it's just such a ridiculous story that this even happened. So he's playing on that ridiculousness. So it's a really interesting chapter to read. Um, but yeah, so there were a few of my little snapshots of things that I enjoyed from this. And I just wanted to signal as well um, from the introduction because I was a bit hesitant to read this book and it's because I read a lot of books like this being a consumer of football writing because I love football writing and I love football and I love literature. So that always sort of – yeah, no, I'll keep that on the download, don't I? <laughs> um, so it's always conducive to picking up texts that are written by men um, about sort of general football stuff. Most of the time I enjoy them. Sometimes I find them quite similar and quite dry. But this one I sort of picked up and I was like, is this going to be very similar to what I'd read before? And there are two things in this introduction that actually signaled to me that this was going to be a bit different. And on the second page, it's when he's talking about his story of growing up as being a Geelong supporter and a football fan and why he wanted to write this book. He's just talking about um, like things he's kept from his past and he's got this story of this old footy record that he has and he um, he's flipping through it and just reminiscing and he quotes some advertising copy from a Toyota Corolla ad um, where he makes a bit of a gendered joke because the tagline of the ad is the Australian motorist knows value for money when he sees it. And then he says, apparently even Australian copywriters had not grasped that for some time it had been perfectly legal for Australian women to drive cars as well. And I just love that because I think to me that just signals just a bit of awareness of the role of women and the time that we're in. So I sort of kept reading through that. And then he just makes a comment on the final page of the introduction about AFLW because um, he explains why he hasn't addressed AFLW in this book and it's not written about any of those matches. And he just sort of said that he didn't want AFLW to be a side note to this book and he didn't want to just put it in there um, just as like a gimmick, I guess. Um and he didn't want to just – I think the the line is, it does, um, the story of the women's game deserves better than being an appendix to a book about the men's game. Um, and I think that also opens up the opportunity for maybe someone else to come along and keep writing those stories. I know the Footy Almanac have done a really great job of covering the first two seasons of the AFLW, but we definitely need more sports writing about the AFLW. But those kind of things, like they don't seem like a lot, but they just signal to me as a woman reading about the men's game that – you know, some awareness has been given about the role of women and there's just a bit more nuance to writing about the men's game these days than just what it, what I've read before. So I just really appreciated that. So you mentioned there that there's a significant explanation of the absence of women's footy. Mm-hmm. There's no explanation of the absence of West Coast footy. And I'm sat here wearing a vintage uh, Brisbane Bears scarf. Shout-outs to Retro Footy Books and Guernseys on Instagram and Twitter. Get him a follow for all your old nostalgic footy merch. But the point I'm trying to make is that in a book about a competition that nationalised, I would have thought that having a lifting-off point of when we introduced new teams and how that impacted the comp in some way was probably quite important. And so the Bears and the Eagles came in at the same time in 86, um, what, some six years or four years after they moved South Melbourne up to Sydney. And then obviously some years before um, the Crows who came in in the early 90s and then Port and Frio who came in in the late 90s. Um, Funnily enough, we address Gold Coast and GWS adequately. So how much did that annoy you? I'm like gritting my teeth right now because I think I've gone through all my list of nice things to say about this book. But Mr. Andrew Mueller, how did you overlook not including West Coast Eagles in your book about all of the Australian, important Australian rules football matches that happened throughout history? How dare you, sir? How dare you? Because in many ways, like West Coast is like, is Western Australia's representative team. I know there are now two teams, but Frio is very much like Fremantle. Yes. And then everyone else barracks for West Coast. Yes, but Fremantle got two chapters in the book. But did they funnily get them enough? because of being Frio? Uh, no. So they got one because it was Fitzroy's last game before they moved up to merge with the Bears. Correct. Yeah. Um, 
I forget what the second one is because I didn't read it because it's Fremantle and so I'm not going to read that. Can you make a case, Jack, for like why you would skip West Coast? Yeah, tell me. Tell me. <laughs> because like in, in, in terms of the teams to enter the AFL, they've been the most successful. They've had probably the greatest impact on tactics and things. They've had some of the great stories with Mick Malthouse. Before that. Chris Lewis. They've also had you can get you can get kind of icky with it and go down like the drugs ang- angle and like mm. issues around the, bringing that into the fore of the AFL. Like it'd be about Westgate. It wouldn't be great, but like it wouldn't be like a positive outlook. But it'd be it's an important outlook where that became like a prominent feature of the AFL mm. and it has kind of stayed with since. So, of the expansion teams, I think the there's no question of Sydney's impact. There's no question of the impact of Brisbane. West Coast, there's no question of the impact. Port Adelaide have won a flag in 04, have a storied history. The Crows have won premierships. My question would be Frio, Gold Coast. I have a tin hat theory here as well. Go on. Go on. So the Waffle, I think, is the only independent run state league anymore. So, like, is this an AFL sanctioned book, perhaps? Because, yeah, the Waffle Hmm. is its own private league, private entity. The AFL has no. Uh, influence over how it governs itself. If they wanted to not play certain rules or not play a certain way or not, yeah, do whatever. Um, so whereas every other Collins. every other league, including Sample now, is an AFL sanctioned league, an AFL run league. It doesn't look like it's affiliated. I, um, but I mean, that's again, not to say. Yeah. Um, Can't find any reference to it. No, and then I mean the names don't look, and they've not used any logos. Yeah. Um, there's no photos. There's no I official. I suspect it wasn't. But, but even I that mean, could be an, like an either a conscious or just an unconscious decision that, like, because often I think AFL, like, we you've mentioned a couple of times where you feel like the Eagles don't get mentioned. A lot of times. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you have a book about Australia and the Australian game. Yeah. That the waffle is so important to that story because. It is. Part of the reason why State of, or- uh, State of Origin was so important was because it was a waffle. It was WA's chance. They say the Black Swans are actually the, like you reckon Victoria is the home of football. Get stuff. Mm. But that was the same the Perth reason South Australians had footy. Sorry, State of Origin is so significant because mm. it was everyone's opportunity. Everyone's rival was Victoria, mm. and that was event- one of the reasons the concept eventually died in its ass. Is because all anyone wanted, like Western Australia, didn't want to play South Australia. Everyone just wanted to play Victoria. Yeah, so I can't see any logical reason why they've been excluded. I just have to believe that it's just ignorance <laughs> and an oversight because but, I think there are just so many significant games that weren't just significant for the West Coast Eagles, that were significant for the league, that could have easily made this 2015 way. 2015 grand final? Just get in the bin. <laughs> Uh, we, could have, um, we could have had the Andrew Gaff uh, oh uh, derby. God. You could tell us which derby you would have actually had, though, Case. Well, it's hard because, I mean, there's one I think that should be in there which doesn't fare well for West Coast. But, I mean, the Demolition Derby is iconic of 2000, um, which reminded me a lot of the Bloodbath Grand Final when I was reading it. Um, but Because I, th- I think the interesting thing about the Bloodbath Grand Final is some of the reports um, of, like, fans on the day um, sort of saying that it wasn't that bad and it was good entertainment. But then the reports in the paper afterwards is like, this is disgusting this is horrific and that kind of stuff I find really interesting because I think that happened a bit in the demolition derby too like the commentary during that game um I think it's something like oh I think the line that I always remember and I forget he said it wasn't Dennis Cometti it was someone else but he said something like oh Dale Kickett's out there throwing haymakers uh off we go with um and we'll get back to business something like that and it's just like in the context of the game, the violence isn't really referenced that much until later in the game where it clearly escalates. But then you read the papers the next day and it's just like, hell kick it, it was like yeah. deplorable on the weekend. But I think that stuff is really interesting. So that could have been a really good narrative, though West Coast did lose that. Um, did they? By a point. They lost the fight um, and the game. So for a West Coast lost fan, the battle and the war. that's not the best one. I think the best one for me, from my memory, was um, the 2011 um, one where it was um, Hayden Ballantyne had to kick a goal after the siren to win it. And I just remember watching that game in my lounge room at the time, just on my knees in front of my television, just praying. And some like of my housemates at the time, just like laughing at me and just like knowing that if we lost that they weren't going to hang out with me for a week because I would lock myself in my room. Um, 
and there's this moment where he kicks it. He's 52 metres out. It's this monster kick and it looks like he makes it because he starts celebrating and I just remember my heart just sinking and then you see the, see the central umpire go up to the goal umpire and they just have a chat and they're like, nah, touch the behind and I was just like, yes, this is running around my laundry. so happy. The other interesting games you could have had were the uh, repeat West Coast Sydney Grand Finals. And that as a changing of the guard from the AFL being a Victorian heartland. Could we, well, we Correct. did have Brisbane. Agree with that. That was like a dynasty, whereas this now was two years two in teams. a row where it was yeah, outside, like, external. Yeah, I agree with that. There's um, so much. Even like if we weren't going to have like a West Coast game, like I'd even just want like a West Coast narrative because I thought um, a, one of the games I thought that was sh- that should have been in here just from a Victorian point of view was Ben Cousins' return where they sold out the MCG for the first time in a regular season game. And I think that is defining from just like a like a historic point of yeah. view um, yeah. that one player could could do, ha- that. could do that. From West Coast, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. And <laughs> but, I think it's interesting you mentioned the yeah. Derby being excluded because there's an entire book now that came out recently about the Derby and about the significant derbies. Mm-hmm. I can't remember when it was. It was released when the Derby was on. Well, should that like be should that be a book club for the future then? Because I was about to say, if there is this um, massive hole in Western Australian footy history, perhaps we should take it upon ourselves to go try and fill it with something. But thank you for joining us for another bumper episode. We are going to hopefully be back with you every week from now until the end of the footy season. If you've got any tidbits you want to send in, any books you want to recommend, we are always open. Our ears are always open. Get in touch with us via Facebook, via Twitter, wherever you do your social media and we will be off probably watching more. Everyone. Thank you.